Good morning, everyone. Uh, this morning, I'm going to read to you from Matthew 5, 27 through 32. And it's conveniently in the bulletin today, if you want to follow along. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right, good morning. I want to remind you that this coming weekend is our Fall Fest. Yeah. It's not too late to get involved, and it's definitely not too early to start inviting people. It's always a blast, and we we didn't get a chance to do this last year, so I'm really looking forward. And I think, honestly, everybody... Well, oh, you, I'm getting the finger here. I mean, this kind of a finger. I'm being told to get in front of the camera, which, for those of you on Facebook, I was just trying to do you a solid favor by getting out of the screen, but here I am. Uh, <laughs> we always have a ball at, 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 at Fall Fest, and I think right now people are hungry to go out and do something. And to have fun. And so don't be afraid to invite people to come to this. It's just good homespun fun and it's free. So on with our lesson. My name is Alan. If you're new to us, if this is your first time here, uh, we are in the middle of a series of lessons called, You Want Me to Do What? You Want Me to Do What? The passage that Carolee just read... Has anybody not heard of that one before? Is that the first time you're hearing Jesus' words there in Matthew 5? How many of you are left after you listen to that with that question? You want me to do what? I mean, Jesus is talking about gouging out eyes and cutting off hands. If that one doesn't make you start to ask, you want me to do what? Uh, maybe you're further along <laughs> than I am. I've looked at this passage for years and years and years. I've heard thousands of lessons. I've been in thousands of discussions. And there's always an element of struggling with understanding exactly what Jesus is getting at here for most of us. So today, we're going to try and tackle it and see if we can figure out what's going on in this. So just like last time, we, we looked at murder. Jesus started with murder. We found out that it's not just murder that bugs God. It's contempt. Angry contempt for your brother. How many of you found that lesson a little disturbing? Yeah, I would just keep in mind, I'm just the messenger. Jesus wrote the material. <laughs> this is his sermon. I just believe it. I know you do too, or it wouldn't have bothered you. Today, Jesus is going to start again with something that everybody he was talking to the day that he presented this knew, and I think we know too. Adultery is wrong. Is there anybody here who thinks adultery is not wrong? Good. <laughs> Good. Adultery is one of the most frequently and severely condemned sins in the Bible. It's mentioned 52 times, including the Ten Commandments, all four Gospels, and ten other books of the Bible. Only the sins of idolatry, 
self-righteousness, and murder are mentioned more often. Did that surprise you? It was considered a crime against God and the state. And it carried a death sentence for both the adulterer and the adulteress. Anything you didn't know there? Is it safe to say that adultery is a big deal? Yeah. God's got a real problem with adultery. Why is lust just as wrong as adultery? I mean, let's back up a step. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Do you think that lust suddenly became wrong because Jesus points it out in this sermon? Or was it always wrong? I don't think Jesus added any new rules. In fact, just want to call back your attention. If you haven't heard the other sermons that came before this one as we've been walking through Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, it's really in your best interest to go back and listen to it because he's building a point. And this lesson and the lessons that come after it are going to stand on those foundations. We know that Jesus wants us to go deeper. We know that he wants us to help him change the world. He wants us to be salt and light. He wants us to go deeper and go past the rules. He wants us to find the heart of God, to search for that and to seek for it. And now he's started off by saying there are other things besides murder that breaks God's heart. Angry contempt is wrong for the same reasons that murder is wrong. We found that lesson challenging. Now he's saying, hey, you know adultery is a big deal. Lust is wrong for the same reason that adultery is wrong. Do you know why both lust and adultery are wrong? Well, if we go back and we look at this issue through the lens that Jesus gave us about going deeper, and instead of being satisfied with rules, looking for the heart of God, we learned earlier that Jesus is referring to justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He called them the weightier matters of the law in Matthew 23. It's about what it means to be loving. And if we look at adultery and lust through the lens of what's just and unjust, I think this passage is going to start to make more sense to us. Adultery and lust are both an act of injustice. They're both an act of injustice. That's denying somebody their rights. Not their rights given to them by the Constitution, but the rights that were given to them by God. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that husbands and wives have exclusive rights to each other's bodies. So just like someone who murders another person has deprived that victim of their right, and ultimately deprived God of his right to have us be his image bearers, the one who commits adultery has deprived somebody of their rights. How you doing? You with me so far? Okay. Adultery is also an act of unfaithfulness. Right? And in some circumstances, it could also be an act of unmercifulness. Not being merciful. What were we told that God wants from us? He wants us to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with His, with our God. It's Micah 6-8. Remember, Jesus brought that up to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And I think faithfulness and humility are very well connected. 
He's talking about the same thing. It was what everybody knew. Adultery violates all three. Is it a big deal? Yeah, it is. What Jesus is saying in this passage is using the body of someone you're not married to for your sexual gratification, either mentally or physically, is unjust, unfaithful, and potentially unmerciful. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness are the building blocks, the key components to what it means to be loving, which is God created, what God created us to be. So why is Jesus so ticked off about lust? Why do I say he's ticked off about lust? He's talking about cutting off parts of your body. Does anybody here think that Jesus is actually advocating self-mutilation as a means to righteousness? I don't think so either. If self-mutilation and cutting off body parts were going to somehow cause us not to lust or commit adultery, I'm not sure that hands and eyes are the body parts that he would be singling out. I'm not trying to be cute or crude, but, you know, I gouge out an eye. I don't think it solves my problem with lust. If I lose my hand, I don't think it solves my problem with lust. I think the problem goes deeper. I think what we get a glimpse into is Jesus' feelings on the subject. If he's saying, you'd be better off to gouge out your eye and cut off your hand than to lose your whole self, do you think he's a little passionate on this point, or does it sound like he's maybe neutral? I think he's getting pretty worked up. So why? Why does Jesus get so bothered with this lust issue? God created us as sexual creatures. That's the way He created us. When sexual desire is properly directed, it brings people together like nothing else can. In fact, over and over in the Bible, from the beginning, in Genesis, we're told it brings two people and makes them one flesh. I'm not certain I can fully unpack what it means to be one flesh. Maybe you can and you can help me understand it. I think it's deeper maybe than what I can get to at this very moment. But it's good. He created us sexual beings, created us male and female, and he said it's good when it's properly directed and sexual desire is properly directed. But, and I think this is coming to the point of why it bothers Jesus so much, although I'm going to have to talk more about this to, I think, fully make it make sense. Misdirected sexual desire, misdirected sexual desire, turns people into animals. Turns people into animals. That is not what God wants out of us. He created us for so much more. He has so much of a higher view of sexuality and sex than just animal instinct. I mean, that's the difference between humans and animals, right? Animals act in self-interest and on instinct. And as humans, we've been given the capacity to do more than that, to act in the interest of someone else. Even to act against our own interest for somebody else. When we have misdirected sexual desire, lust, our conscience, our values, our morals, they all go out the window. 
I've been there. Have you? You don't need to put your hand up. I'll be the shame bearer today. I feel pretty safe with this one because I think we've all had issues with this. I I promised you early on in this lesson series that at some point Jesus was going to bother you deeply. This might be the lesson for you. For some, it was last week. This might be the lesson for you today. Don't be discouraged. Don't be angry. Jesus is trying to get at something so precious. Remember, He loves you. But He can't love you and not tell you the truth. Or not get you to look at the truth and look at yourself and see yourself the way that He does. When we give in to lust, we act like animals. We act impulsively, often in destructive and abusive ways towards each other. See, what Jesus is doing is He's actively restoring all levels of human relationship. That's what He's doing right now. That's what He did in His ministry when He was here on earth. That's what He's been doing, continuing in His ministry through the apostles and through us. Through every generation of His disciples, He has been actively working to restore all levels of human relationship. And He's creating a new humanity that restores our role as image bearers of God. Lust undermines everything Jesus is doing. And it violates the highest ethic of His kingdom, which is love. I think that's why it bothers Him so much. I think that's why He uses the hyperbole about gouging out an eye and cutting off a hand. He wants us to know how serious He takes this because there's a lot at stake with what we do with our minds and our thoughts. So let's get into it. What is happening in your heart when you stare at someone and fuel your sexual desires? This can be with 2D images or 3D people in front of you. So are we talking about pornography? Yeah. And some movies. And some workplaces. Some social events. It's not just one thing. What is happening in your heart whenever you stare at someone? Jesus' words are, when you look with lustful intent. See, there's a difference between looking at someone and finding them attractive and looking to intend to stir up your lust. I think it was, oh, now I can't remember if it was, I think it was Luther, but I'm probably wrong, who said, I can't keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can keep it from building a nest in my hair. We have a responsibility, and Jesus is talking about the stare, that looking at it to stir up. What's happening in your heart when you do that? That can be in real time, or that can be with a picture or a movie. The action reveals, whether we would say it this way or not, that in our hearts, we think that other people to exist, other people exist to play a role in maximizing our pleasure and or minimizing our pain. Does that agree with God or disagree with God's design for you and me? Did God create other people to help maximize my pleasure or minimize my pain? 
But what's happening whenever I stare and I fuel my sexual desire? I'm disagreeing with God. And what I'm doing really is I'm dehumanizing. I'm dehumanizing myself and the person I'm fantasizing about. See, if God's standard for humanity, if what He intended us to be are His image bearers to reflect Him into the world. Remember where I used the flashlight and the mirror? He created us to reflect Him, His love, His justice, His mercy, His faithfulness into the world. And whenever I use other people for my own sexual pleasure or gratification, whether physically or mentally, I'm calling God a liar. And I'm dehumanizing. Instead of embracing God's standard and His design, I've said, no, I think humans ought to be used for this. You think that might tick off Jesus? Yeah, I think actually it gets worse. The vision of sex in the body that comes from the Bible is a reflection of God. It's part of our image-bearing design. It's that way from the beginning. God created man and He said, ah, I, can, I can do better. And He creates woman <laughs> to put her together with man. And they came together and knew one another. God said, this is good. This is very good. This is what image-bearing requires. I need this to be this way. This is how I want it. So there's nothing to be ashamed about with sex. There's nothing to be ashamed about with the human body. Together and pro- appropriately used the way that God designed it, it glorifies Him. It's a very good thing. But when you lust, or when you divorce a faithful spouse, because Jesus mentioned that too, didn't He? He compared that to adultery. He said it is adultery. When you lust or you divorce a faithful spouse, it actually reveals that you think humans exist to please and serve and gratify you, not to image God. Lust degrades my own image-bearing humanity because in that action, I'm reflecting my selfishness and willingness to use other people. In this world, I'm reflecting that. In my society, I'm reflecting that. In my relationships, I'm reflecting that. We've all seen it in the locker rooms. We've seen it in the workplace. I've even seen humor in the church that reflected this. Have you? Yeah. So what Jesus is describing, the stare, the choice, what you think about that person in that moment, is a violation of the greatest ethic of the kingdom of God. See, love is the greatest ethic. What does love do? The exact opposite of what lust does. Love elevates other people. Love protects other people and honors them. It seeks their well-being even above my own to treat them in my mind as just a body. A sexual object is to degrade their humanity and my own. And it ticks Jesus off. It ticks Jesus off. Jesus is intolerant of behavior that fractures relationships and abuses other humans, isn't he? Yeah, he's very intolerant of that because love is what God made us for. 
to be loved and to love other people. And lust, adultery, unjust divorce, undermines all of that. So, why is Jesus only talking about men here? Does this trouble anybody else? I guess it's because we all know that women don't struggle with these issues. Does Jesus not think that women ever have inappropriate, misdirected sexual desire? I think he knows that. Yeah, I think Jesus knows that women have these issues too, but think with me for a second here. Historically, which gender has historically turned sexual desire into a tool of violence, subjugation, and oppression of the other gender? Us guys, isn't it? Yeah. The crowd that Jesus is talking to in this sermon, as a society, was guilty of doing exactly that to their women. And so Jesus is addressing it. He's calling it out and he's calling them back to what God created. It wasn't always that way in Israel. Women weren't always treated so badly in Israel. In ancient Israel, women participated in every aspect of community life except the temple priesthood. Women freely engaged in commerce and real estate. The Proverbs 31 woman, what's she doing? You know that in Jesus' day, she wouldn't have been allowed to do that. Women played music in the sanctuary. Psalm 68. They prayed there. They sang and danced with men in religious processions. They participated in music and festivities at weddings. Several women exercised leadership roles over Israel. For example, Miriam, the sister of Moses. She led the nation of Israel in worship, Exodus 15. Deborah was a judge and a prophetess. Huldah was a prophetess that King Josiah consulted instead of Jeremiah in 2 Kings. But by the time of Jesus, the role of women had drastically changed for the worse. While a man's primary, in Jesus' day, a man's primary responsibility was seen as being in the public and doing things publicly. But a woman's life was confined almost entirely to the private family sphere. Women were not allowed to testify in court. Why is that a big deal? Well, in effect, it put them in the same category with Gentiles who they believed didn't, weren't, weren't, they didn't love God at all. They were the problem of the world in the Jewish mind. So it put a woman over there in that category. It put her in the, court, in, in the same category as minors, as deaf mutes, and any other undesirables like gamblers, the insane, pigeon racers. <laughs> we all have a problem with pigeon racers. You know, if there's anybody here involved in that, I'd I'd highly encourage you to get rid of it. I just actually copied and pasted some descriptions out of this. I I must have read past that because I read it just now, and it's the first time that I noticed pigeon racers were in this, and if I had done better research, I would have skipped that one. But there I told you about it, so if I stepped on your toes for your pigeon racing, I'm sorry, it's, it's in the text. Customarily, even a woman of stature couldn't engage in commerce and would rarely be seen outside of her home during in Jesus' time. 
There was a euphemism. You know what that is, right? A euphemism. It's something that they would say that kind of means something else. There was a euphemism that they had for prostitutes. You know what it was? It was one who goes abroad. In other words, if you're a woman and you're out and about, they think you're a whore. This is how the society had changed. It wasn't like that in the beginning. But this is where they got to. Even a woman of stature would rarely be seen outside of her home. If she was ever in the street, she had to be heavily veiled. And we see that some in some cultures today, don't we? She had to be heavily veiled and she was prohibited from talking with men. First century women didn't even do their own shopping, except possibly if they were accompanied by a slave. The Talmud, which is like the central rule book for rabbinic Judaism, here's a quote from that. It says, it is foolish to teach Torah to your daughter. What that meant is, it was a waste of time to teach God's laws to women. And the teaching of the law to kids was how you train them to read and write. So in Jesus' day, most women were kept illiterate. Wow, huh? And these were God's people. At the time when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, adultery had been defined as consensual sexual intercourse by a married woman with a man other than her husband. However, a married man having sex with an unmarried woman was not considered adultery. Extramarital sex of a married man was not seen as a crime. It's probably, at least partly, because the wife had been seen as the husband's property. But she had no such claim on him. She was considered his property. But he was free. Man, that's rough, isn't it? Now, I just told you all that to help you understand why Jesus is using the kind of language that he's using and why he's talking to men specifically. That's the culture that he's talking to. But is it all that different today? Are women in our nation really honored and valued the way that God wants them to be? Are women in the church honored and valued the way that God wants them to be? So how did this happen to Israel? How did they get to this place? How did they go from the place where women are honored and valued and they're equals in society? They have different roles, but they're valued to this place where they're just a little bit above cattle. How did they get there? Very likely, it came from Greek thought, which was so common. Give you, you know, we could talk about the history of it, but I got to get moving along here before I run out of time. But there was a, a guy named Alexander the Great who did a lot of uh, conquering, and he took Greek thought all over the Mediterranean world, and that Greek thought permeated even Jewish society. In Acts, you read about the big tension between the Hellenistic Jews, which is those who think and act more like Greeks, and those who are more pure in their Judaism. They had been influenced heavily by the society around them. 
It didn't happen overnight, but eventually their views of sex, gender, and human worth and vocation came to look more like the world around them than the world God wanted to use them to create. Is that just them then and there? Or does that potential exist for us? I think we ought to take a lesson from history and not feel superior to the crowd that Jesus is talking to because I don't think that we all the time value. If we valued women, men, if we valued women the way that God told us to, would there be such a rampant problem with pornography in Christian churches? Awfully quiet in here. Those of us that have been involved in churches for a while, would there be this sit down, shut up mentality and attitude towards women in worship services? It's a question. I think we ought to take a look at it and think about it. See, I think the reason that Jesus is only talking to men here is because Jesus isn't just teaching individual morality. He is teaching individual morality, for sure. So the things that he's concerned about with men, he's concerned about with women. But Jesus is doing more than just teaching individual morality. He's launching the kingdom. He's launching the kingdom of God. And he's inaugurating a new kind of humanity. It's an alternate society. Different than the society around us. And Jesus is challenging the men who live in his kingdom to let him work on this area of their hearts so his kingdom is a place that's safe for women. Jesus wants his kingdom, demands that his kingdom is a place that's safe for women. So where does the problem of lust, adultery, and unjustified divorce actually come from? We were talking about body parts a minute ago, which is the body part that Jesus is talking about here, really. It's not the eye or the hand. It's the heart. I'm not talking about your blood-pumping muscle. I'm talking about the center of your emotions and your logic, the way you think. That's how the Bible uses the heart as a metaphor for. Check out Matthew fifteen nineteen. Jesus said there that for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Where's the problem with lust, adultery, and unjustified divorce come from? I think he just said, comes out of the heart. To go even further, in Matthew 19, verse 8, he says to some guys there, because they challenged him about, well, hey, Moses gives us the law, remember, the rules, The best rule keepers in the land are saying, Moses said we could divorce a woman for any and every right. What do you say? And Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. What's the problem with the heart? Hard. Where does the problem with lust, unjustified divorce, adultery, where does it start? It's the heart. What kind of a heart do you have that does that? You have a hard heart. And here's the problem with a hard heart. It can't be bent, molded, or shaped. 
it'll break and crumble before it bends, before it can be molded. And God wants my heart and your heart to be flexible so I can be moved and molded by Him rather than broken. You get me? You follow what I'm saying? Okay, what's a hard heart? A hard heart is a prideful heart. I'm I'm giving you these. This is probably not an exclusive list, but I'm giving these so that you can begin to look at yourself and ask yourself, do I have a hard heart? I told someone this morning that I was in a foul mood whenever I got up, and I've been fighting this bad mood until I started singing. Part of what's got me bugged is because doing this lesson, I found that I have hardness in my heart that I haven't dealt with yet. And I was surprised. It wasn't in the typical places. I know I've dealt with the lust thing for a long time. That one was no surprise to me. But as I'm chasing down what a hard heart is, I'm finding out I've got one. It's not entirely hard, but I'll get into that in a minute. I'm hoping that you can use these things that I'm giving you. I'm just going to give you four to look at to see if maybe there's some hardness in your heart. Because if we have hard hearts, God can't shape us. And he's trying to make us into the image of Jesus. He wants to restore our humanity, to make us fully human, to cause us to love other people the way that he does, and to enjoy his love. And a hard heart won't allow that. The first thing that I'd show you is that a hard heart is a prideful heart. Pride makes me stubborn. Are you stubborn? I was once told stubborn isn't a problem if you're right. I wonder about the pride in that heart. And the problem with a stubborn heart is it causes me to trust myself and not God. As you interact with Jesus' teachings, you're going to find out if you have a prideful, hard heart. Because He's going to ask you to do something that you don't want to do. He's going to ask you to do things that you think will not work. Do you have a prideful heart too? A hard heart is a misunderstanding heart. There's a story in Mark, chapter 8, verse 14 through 17. I'll just read it. I think you'll catch on to what's going on. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, is it because we have no bread? (laughs) Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Catch this. Are your hearts hardened? See, a hard heart will cause me to misunderstand Jesus' teachings and who he is to me. I'll start maybe to see his rules as unrealistic. I'll start seeing him as critical, waiting to catch me in a sin so he can send me to hell. He's none of those things. A hard heart is a misunderstanding heart. Three, a hard heart is an unrepentant heart. It's an unrepentant heart. It won't change. It's not going to abandon course. It's not going to agree with God. It's not going to feel any different. It's going to close up and try to protect itself. 
and it's going to insist that it can get by with things the way they want it to be done. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. He says, you must no longer work as the Gentiles do. So when you read Gentiles, read the rest of the world, the world around you. You must no longer work, walk as the rest of the world does in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the, of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their heart. Here's that hard heart again. It prevents them from repenting. It says they have become callous. You know what calluses are. It's where you stop feeling. How many of us, and I don't look for your, your hands, but I know from my own personal experience, things that I did, behavior that I've done that shocked me at first, slowly became normal. Things that once made me sick to my stomach became things I sought out for pleasure. And I'm embarrassed to tell you that, but I also realize I'm talking to people who deal with it too. They've become callous and have given themselves over to what? Sensuality. How they feel. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's what a hard heart will do. King David. There are two classic examples of hearts, good and bad. Both flawed men in the Bible. Pharaoh. He had a hard heart, right? And if you read closely and pay attention to the way the verbs are used, you'll find out that some verses say God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and other verses say Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Which one is true? Both. I won't try to unpack all that for you right now, but I would tell you that if you look at it, it seems to me that the first five plagues, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The last five, God hardened him. It's like, okay, you will not repent. I'm going to hold you in place now. I'm not going to let you repent because I'm going to show the world what happens whenever you have a hard heart. See, Pharaoh wanted to use people to fuel his economy. And yet in our generation and in this day and in this place, we tend to want to use other people to fuel our sexual fantasies. Is there that much of a difference? Pharaoh refused to repent. And look what happened to him. King David, on the other hand, did he have a problem with lust? Pretty sure David had a a problem with lust. In fact, if you remember the whole chapter with Bathsheba, what happened? It started out looking out his window, Caesar taking a bath on a rooftop. And instead of walking away, he let the bird nest in his head, in his hair. And he stares. He ends up sleeping with her and then killing her husband to try to overcome it. And Nathan, the prophet, is sent to straighten him out. And what does David do? He repented. He repented. And God honored him because of that. Did he suffer consequences for it? Absolutely. And that ripple effect went all through his family. But there was a difference between Pharaoh and King David. One had a hard heart that refused to be shaped and molded, and so it was broken apart. And one had a soft heart that God could change. The last one, four, a hard heart is an unsympathetic heart. It's an unsympathetic heart. When I can't sympathize with others, 
I can't or I won't respond to their needs. 1 John 3, 17. John's questioning, how can God's love abide in somebody who is unsympathetic? Can't. Because of a hard heart. An unsympathetic heart is unmerciful. That's not loving. Okay. I may not be committing adultery, but that doesn't mean I'm loving. If I'm caught up in lust, or I'm willing to divorce a faithful spouse, my problem is I have a hard heart. A prideful, misunderstanding, unrepentant, unsympathetic heart. I'm standing here in front of you saying, I got this problem in my life. I'm not committing adultery. Okay. <laughs> and I'm working. I've, 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 personally, I found myself growing and, and starting to find some freedom from the lust thing. But that doesn't mean I'm free from everything on that list with everybody that I know. I have areas that I still have to work from and work on, and I suspect you do too. Jesus wants me to soften my heart. He wants you to soften his heart. Whenever he's given this lesson on that mount all those years ago, he wanted people to soften their hearts. He wants us to soften our hearts towards the opposite gender. Jesus is not okay with me using others to fuel my sexual fantasies. He's not okay with you using other people to fuel your sexual fantasies. Jesus wants me to soften my heart towards my spouse. He's not okay with me violating my spouse's rights. And Jesus wants me to soften my heart towards God. He wants me to let God shape my thoughts, my feelings, and my values. So how can I soften my heart? I'm going to try to wrap this up. How can I soften my heart? Well, first... And this should be obvious to us by this point. I can pray. I can pray and I can ask God for a pure, soft heart. By the way, you already did this in song today when we had communion. Create in me a clean heart, O God, was written by the anti-Pharaoh guy, David. And you can read it. The words came from Psalms 51.10. It starts with asking God having the courage to ask Him to give you a clean heart. The second thing I can do is I can soak my heart in God's love. I can soak it in God's love. First John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. You ever had something that was stiff and you needed to limber it up? You probably had to soak something into it. I was watching a YouTube video of this lady who works with clay. And so she had this hard block, and I mean, it was like this big, probably a foot by a foot cube of clay that she would use, to, and she couldn't do anything with it. She'd try to cut into it, the knife wouldn't sink. She'd try to pull off a piece, it just turned into crumbles. It was unusable. And so her whole reason for doing this video was to show how to make it usable again. So what did she do? She grabbed a, a, a big plastic bag, big enough to tie it into a knot around it. She poured some a, a cup of water just a cup of water in on the clay. And then before she tied it, she sank the whole thing into like a five-gallon bucket of water. The reason for that is the outside pressure would push all the air out and push the water 
into the clay. Then she tied it into a knot and she left it for a week. And then she pulled it back out and she started to slice it and it just went like a butter, like a hot knife through butter. And it was perfectly usable, soft and able to be made into something. A work of art even. If we're going to have a soft heart, I think we're going to have to do that with God's love. We need to soak in it. We need to let it permeate us and respond to His love because it will make us more loving. The third thing I can do is I can purify my heart. I can purify my heart, and this is straight out of James 4, verses 8 through 10. I've got to be honest, it looks almost to me like a recipe. So I'm going to present it to you that way and let you see what you think of it. The first step to purifying my heart is to draw near to God. Draw near to God, he says, and he will draw near to you. When we talk about our sexuality and this kind of hard heart and all the things that stem out of it, we can feel dirty. We can feel shame. What does shame make you want to do? Hi, look at me. No. (laughs) It makes you want to hide. I mean, that's what happened to Adam and Eve, didn't it? They they knew they were naked. They hear God. What do they do? Hey, God, we got a problem. No, they went and hid like you can hide from God. And shame still works that way for us today. But James is telling us, if you'll draw near to God, he's not going to run from you. He'll run to you. So the first thing I want, if I want a soft heart, I'm going to pray, I'm going to soak in his love, and I'm going to draw near to him. Second thing, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Cleanse your hands talks about stop doing certain things. You need to wash your hands of certain things. How many of you younger folks, maybe this is an older folks thing too, how many of you need to wash your hands of this little gizmo right here? It would not be the end of your world if you went to a flip phone. A flip phone. It doesn't allow you to do certain things that this one will allow you to do. It's just for talking to people, text or or voice. If this is your problem, you need to cleanse your hands or use Jesus' idea and cut it off. Is this the problem? You can live without this, but a hard heart you can't. So I would encourage you to consider that. For others... Maybe it's your computer or your TV. In our day and age, that sounds like, oh my gosh, now you are radical. I can lose one eye. (laughs) Start battering. I I can do like this. Can I still have my phone? (laughs) You know, you're missing the point. Whatever you need to do to cleanse your hands, there are some things that you might have to take a radical action with so that you don't keep stumbling into it. Third thing, have a a pure heart. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. The Greek word that James uses here means literally two-souled. Two souls. We would call that being two-faced. Two-faced is where I present one face to you and another to other people. Where I pretend that I'm something that I'm not. I stand before you telling you, I've got problems with having a hard heart. 
I don't like telling you that. You probably knew it before I did. But I'm not going to be two-faced. I'm going to try to be as painful as it is to be transparent. I'm going to try to be transparent. Because that's what this verse says to do. Not everybody needs to know everything about you. Somebody does. Be responsible and careful with who you share those intimate details in. But, you know, that is one of the reasons why we have small groups. You know, uh, I was putting together a list of our small groups and trying to, for communication purposes, I wanted to be able to make sure that everybody got information smoothly and efficiently. And what I found out is about a hundred people in this church are listed as being involved with a small group. That's only about half of us, a little less. And then what I found out when I started talking to small group leaders is, yeah, this person's on the list, but they don't come. Other small group leaders will say, yeah, they'll come, but they don't want anybody to talk to them serious, like I'm talking to you today. So, <laughs> you got me to preach at you this morning, and now here I am. I'm talking about the very things you try to avoid. I, I try to avoid them. So I've, I've tried to avoid them before, too. It just didn't help. So, I'm hoping to help you break that gap. If you're not able to talk to somebody, you need to be in a small group. You need to have somebody so that you can avoid being two-faced and two-souled. Until you deal with that, you're probably going to have a problem with purity in your heart. So the ring that I'm wearing, if I can get it off my fat knuckle now, this is my wedding ring. is a 10-carat gold ring. It's gold. Why do you think I got 10-carat instead of 24? Do they make any higher than 24? Any jewelers here? What's the difference between 10 and 24? Hardness. What causes the hardness? Impurities. Why did I go for a 10 carat? Because I wanted it to be hard enough that I could still work on my car. Ha ha. <laughs> or, or, you know, pick things up and not mess up and bend my ring. I wanted it to be hard. But you don't make precious things out of 10 carat gold. You need something softer. And the fewer impurities, the softer the gold is, and the more precious the item, the work of art can be made out of. See, this is still gold. And I think those of us who have followed Christ have been given a new heart that still has impurities in it. It's not like we're not saved if we've got hardness in our heart. It's not like we're rejected of God. But His ability to shape us and mold us is related to how many impurities we allow to stay in our heart. Purify my heart. I need to make sure that I am not two-faced, but that I am open. The last thing is I need to humble myself. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Humility is the coin of the realm. In the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I believe what he's talking about is having genuine humility. Humility that says it doesn't have to be my way. Not some debasing of myself. I hope you've caught on to the fact that God doesn't want to debase anybody. He has a higher view of humanity than we typically do. He wants us to embrace that higher view. But to do it, we have to do the opposite of being prideful. We have to be humble to accept what he says. I believe the reason why the first beatitude is about being poor in spirit, having humility, because without that one, so many doors in the kingdom of God stay locked. So many doors in your heart stay locked.
So pursue humility. Okay, I'm out of time. There's no good place to land the plane on this lesson. There really isn't. But we got to stop somewhere. So if you're okay, I'm going to pray. And we're going to be done with this morning. I know I've given you a lot to think about. I will say this. If you've got questions about this lesson or about that passage, and you want to talk to somebody, find one of our small group leaders and ask them. I will make myself available to any of you. I will say this. I would prefer that we do it vocally, verbally, (laughs) over the phone or in person rather than asking me to type it out. Because typing it out through text sometimes takes me hours because I'm always scrutinizing every word to make sure I communicate as clearly as possible and I just don't have the time for that. But I will take your phone call. I'll give you that much time. And I may not be able to answer all your questions, but I'll try. But I'm not the only person here who can try. And I think it's real important that we try to understand what Jesus wants us to do. That's what the series sermon is all about. You want me to do what? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for allowing us to be here, to come together in your name. Jesus is radical. I mean, he wants to get to the root of things. And uh, Father, this is a very private and personal area of our hearts with such implications that I don't know if most of us have even thought about all the implications of, of lust and how it's connected, how it upsets you. As much as divorce, or yeah, as much as divorce and adultery do. Father, I pray that you'll help us to see it the way you do. That you'll change how we, how we look at the opposite gender. Father, I pray that you'll change how we look at our spouses. Stop using people for our pleasure. Instead, to stop protecting their rights and valuing them the way that you do. Father, I pray that you'll soften our hearts, that we will want soft hearts, that we'll pursue it like precious gold so that you can shape our thoughts, our feelings, and our values. And I know what you're going to shape us into. You've already told us. You're going to make us look like Jesus. And Father, he is magnificent. The more I look at him, the more amazed I am. And the promise that we will one day be like Him is unbelievable. And I know that process is starting now. So Father, help us to be a people who are excited about the transformation. Forgive us of our sins. Father, help us to abandon lust, to fight it with everything we've got. And Father, I pray that You'll purify our hearts and soften them so that You can have Your way in us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.